Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to this lecture. Welcome to the LSE, if you're not from the LSE. Uh, before I forget, it is hashtag LSE things, all one word, if you're a hashtag person. Uh, I'm delighted to, to welcome Professor Frank Trentman from Birkbeck College, London, to give this lecture. He's one of ours, actually. He's an LSE graduate, a BA, a first class in 1988, and actually, I remember him. I came to the LSE in 1987, and I'd like to pretend that I remember every student that I've taught since 1987, but I don't actually remember all of them. But I certainly remember Frank, because he was so uh, outstanding. Uh, and then he went on. He was educated at, at, at Harvard. He's written quite extensively on civil society, on empires, on transatlantic exchange, on free trade, on citizenship and consumerism. And he singled authored or edited some uh, 16 books. The last book, Free Trade Nation, won the Whitfield Prize, Historical Association Whitfield Prize in 2008. And then he became the director of the Cultures of Consumption Research Programme funded by the ESRC and the AHRC. And this has resulted in Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st Century. That book's already been reviewed, although it's just come out. It's been enormously well-received, both for the, the depth of scholarship and for the breadth of scholarship in the coverage. One of the reviewers actually said that uh, the booksellers had made a mistake by not bringing it out before Christmas, because it would have been perfect Christmas reading. And indeed, for me, because I got an advanced copy, it was indeed perfect Christmas uh, reading. Uh, but this is now your opportunity to hear Frank speak. He's going to speak for about 40, 45 minutes and then take questions. And he's going to speak on Empire of Things, why we have too much stuff and what to do about it. Professor Trentman. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Janet, uh, for the kind introduction. Um, you don't have to wait till Christmas next year to read the book. Uh, I want to start by saying what a great pleasure it is uh, to be not sitting where you are, um, but after many years to return to LSE and stand, stand here, uh, because I appreciate how much um, I learned as a student from my tutors and lecturers sitting where you are. It's also a privilege to speak at LSE because one of the founders, Beatrice Webb, in 1928, was one of the first thinkers to focus her attention on the role of consumers in modern um, democracies. And she noted how in democracies, the nation comes very near to becoming an association of consumers. And we're going to see whether that's true or not in a minute. So let me start with our problem. Uh, that's a view of the Ukita family's procession neatly piled up outside their small house in Tokyo. Um, gives you a sense of just how much stuff a young family with two small children um, has. It includes 28 pairs of shoes. Not quite... Um, uh, as many as Imelda Marcos uh, accumulated. But nonetheless, if you think about it, two young adults with two small children, 28 pairs of shoes, quite considerable. And you get a snapshot of the rest of it. In the United Kingdom, 
the average Briton has over 100 items of clothing. One third of those never ever leave the wardrobe. <laughs> now, why is this a problem? It's a problem because it connects uh, our burning through materials and ultimately all the way um, to waste and disposal. Um, here you have a snapshot from Guangdong province, which is one of the main centers where old computers, old fridges, and old TVs are taken apart, often um, under uh, very unhealthy and polluting um, conditions. Now, that trade is, in fact, um, illegal from uh, the EU, um, but uh, spot checks in Rotterdam and Hamburg suggest that every year uh, more than 250,000 tons of old uh, computers and screens that are no longer wanted are shipped um, to developing and poor countries. Now, you may say that's com computers. Um, obviously, there are lots of other things we throw away. And if we go to France, um, you get a sense of how much that means for the individual. So two years ago, um, uh, statistical investigations into the French um, municipal waste um, uh, produced 25 kilos of electronic waste, so just electronic waste per year per person. So that's, you know, it's a medium-sized child. Um, and waste in general has been dramatically growing. So um, last year, um, the average French person threw away four times as much as their parents did in the 1970s. So we have a problem. Um, because there's so much accumulation and so much throughput, there's also so much um, waste. Where does it come from? I mean, why? I'm not saying where do the products come from, but where does the problem come from? Why have modern societies been on this trajectory? Why are we in the midst of this problem? The two main ways of thinking about this which have shaped um, academic debate, but also more generally public debate. Um, and those two pieces of con conventional wisdom can be summed up as the model of the affluent society and the idea of conspicuous consumption. Now, the affluent society um, was a famous, uh, rightly so, famous book by um, Galbraith in 1958, in which he presented the United States after the Second World War as having produced an entirely new type of society, um, where people no longer worried about um, the next meal, but they had entered the era of affluence. They were now worried what to do with all the extra disposable income and what products to buy next. What Galbraith argued was that the middle of the 20th century were kind of watershed between human societies before who had been fairly frugal, where people saved rather than taking out credit, uh, where they worried about the future um, and didn't have much disposable income. And then the United States and soon Western European societies after where um, affluence ruled. And one way you can think about that is the idea that in the past, from Galbraith's point of view, before the Second World War, the 
um, ruling imperative in society was needs. You tried to have a head over your roof and a decent meal on the table. That was the goal. Wants, desires, the pursuit of things you don't actually need are then the key marker of the affluent society. And so people um, give each other uh, diamonds and long-tail-finned Cadillacs. Often connected with this idea is that what consumption really is about, and particularly in affluent societies, is to use products and goods to distinguish yourself from those you consider socially inferior. You want the Cadillac with the longest tail fins. You don't want some small car um, that the worker down the road drives. And so the idea is that the elite sets the terms of consuming by going out for ever bigger yachts, bigger cars, more precious products, and then, because the rest of society doesn't want to be left behind, they're all struggling to keep up with the elite. That model, the conspicuous consumption, has gained um, additional purchase in recent years when people started thinking about inequality. Um, Some people call it luxury fever. The idea that the elite goes for ever more expensive luxury goods and then many of you will rush out to buy the newest Prada handbag or some other accessory to also show you you belong or at least you're aspiring to belong um, to the elite. Is that true? How much of that is true? Now, of course, we all know individuals who use um, their hard-earned money to buy luxury accessories. And I'm not denying that they exist. But um, does it add up to the big picture of the main causes that have brought us this problem of accumulation and disposal? So how true is it? Well, let's start with this idea that people need to fulfill all their needs before they can move to wants and think about material desires and luxury. And to do so, we're going to have a first pit stop in Frankfurt, um, West Germany, in 1952. As you can see, Frankfurt in 1952 still suffered from the bombings of the Second World War. Um, Lots of people with um, unsatisfactory or no housing. And it was in this setting that the Ministry of the Marshall Plan which would ultimately assist um, the economic recovery of Europe, had the glorious idea that the way to win over uh, German youth was to start a national photography competition, inviting Germans to submit entries under uh, such titles such as No More Hunger, Peace, Not War, More Homes. And one of the lucky winners was Heidi Simon. 19 years old, born in the year Hitler came to power in 1933. Um, The ministry officials um, wrote her a letter informing her that she had won one of the top prizes, a Vespa moped and a cash prize. And little uh, were they surprised when Heidi Simon um, wrote back saying, well, she was quite grateful to be given this prize, and she didn't want to sound impertinent, but couldn't she rather have the much more fashionable Lambretta 
than the boring Vespa. For the whole last year, she had longed to have the sleek Lambretta. Well, you can imagine what the ministry officials did. They scratched their heads and said, no. (laughs) And so it was the Vespa. But what the story illustrates is that if the model of the needs and wants had been true, the idea that you have to advance through basic requirements of life slowly to health and housing before you can think about fashion or luxury objects or anything that requires a bit of disposable income, Heidi Simon should have asked for brick and mortar and a good meal, but not for a fashionable lambretta. So something's not right in this needs and wants story. And the uh, main thing that isn't right is that it's written by economists, uh, not by historians. If you take a long view, we can see that from the 15th century there is an uptake in consumption, meaning not just greater exchange of goods, but a faster circulation of goods and a rise in the possession of items that reaches larger and larger groups in society. And here you have kind of three um, illustrations um, of that effect. Um, In the bottom uh, bottom left, a, a, a beautifully illustrated porcelain bottle from Ying De Shen, the porcelain center in the world at that time, sort of 400 kilometers southwest of Shanghai. And the top right, you see a colonial um, Latin American example of a beautiful silver mate cup that is a kind of holly, um, which is then brewed with hot water. And the bottom right, closer to home, you have a jasperware teapot um, from Wedgwood. What these have in common, in addition to being pretty, is a consumer good now introduces new forms of sociability. Consumption is something that's enjoyed in company, um, and hence the importance of tea and drink um, to this period. Now, we see this um, rise um, um, in late Ming China, as well as in Renaissance Italy and Flanders, um, in Uh, the 15th and early 16th century, but it's in the 17th and 18th century that something dramatically new happens and qualitatively uh, new happens, and that is a shift towards novelty. The possessions that are now desired in Holland and Britain, first and foremost, are new items, previously unknown items. So tea, coffee, porcelain, colorfully printed cottons that didn't exist in previous generations. So what's going on there? Um, What are some of the social, economic, and cultural factors that give um, consumption this this boost in the 17th and 18th century? Well, one is trade. Um, There's a revival of trade, and it's assisted by the European empires um, and the slave trade Um, that brings forced labor to the Caribbean and to um, Brazil, which then allows the cultivation of cocoa and coffee, which can then be shipped back and consumed in Europe. So empire is important. Um, So is urbanization. Now, China wasn't all rural. There are some towns and cities, but the density of towns and cities in Holland and Britain is unrivaled. So in Britain, in 1500, one 
in 30 people lived in towns or cities. In 1800, it's one in four. Why does that matter? Well, you wouldn't open a shop or, say, a coffee house in the middle of nowhere. Urban centers are magnets for shops. Um, You can um, capitalize on a division of labor. And equally important, it's a public, it has a much bigger public visibility for the kinds of things you own. In a way, your clothes signal what kind of person you think you are or you want other people to think um, uh, you are. And then importantly, um, Britain in particular enjoys a high-wage economy thanks to the Black Death. Um, Nowhere in the world um, do laborers enjoy high wages of the level in Britain. So there's more disposable income going around. And these factors have been given great attention, and some historians try to make their name by sort of isolating one and proclaiming that's the most important and that's the most important. What I think has been missed is that there is a new cultural glue that holds these factors together and gives them, um, forgive the pun, purchase in people's individual lives, but also in society and public and political life um, more generally. And that glue is the notion that people have a material self. So in ancient times, if you think of Plato or Seneca, um, or you look at um, the campaigns against luxury in Renaissance Italy, there's a very, very strong suspicion that um, people are spiritual selves and that it's dangerous to invest too much identity and emotions in processions, that they will distract you from God or from other uh, higher spiritual goals. That means the life of the spirit has to be protected, insulated against these goods, and you had lots of legislation as well as moral campaigns to do that. What happens in the 17th and 18th and 19th century is that new moral and cultural and intellectual and ultimately political Um, armaments are produced that establish this idea of a dichotomy, a divide between the spiritual and the material is quite wrong and in itself dangerous. Instead, and I use the term from William James, the leading American philosopher um, and psychologist of the late 19th century, William James said, people have a spiritual self, but they also have a material self. Their possessions, their homes, their boats, the furnishings, over time become part of them. They're not just external to the individual. They help to tell the individual who they are. They shape people's lives, and they shape people's interactions um, with each other. Now, in addition to that um, argument about the individual having a material self, many thinkers and writers started to make the point that having a material self is also good for society as a whole and for nations. David Hume, in a beautiful um, article on luxury, comes out in defense of what he calls modest luxury. Extreme luxury is dangerous, he says, but, you know, that people want a little bit of comfort, something special, Something new, something exotic shouldn't be frowned upon. Why not? Well, 
Hume says, for one, it actually makes people inquisitive and innovative. People go out to try and find new objects and new goods in the distant world. It encourages trade and discovery, science. Things, David Hume said, also foster um, people living and working with each other. It helps cities, and with that, it helps societies, I mean, philanthropic society, artistic societies, and so forth, and that promotes civilization. And finally, um, it makes for a pretty good policy of economic development. If people do not have desires for new objects and new goods, the economy goes to sleep. No one needs to come up with new products. There's very little competitiveness and hence also very little productivity, we would now call it. So Hume Hume said, actually, if you want a strong nation, don't shield off that nation from um, foreign goods or new things. Embrace them. That will stimulate the economy uh, to go into a higher gear. Now, those arguments... um, Uh, famously summarized by Adam Smith with the slogan that consumption is the sole end of all production in his Wealth of Nations, isn't just an economic argument. It becomes um, a thread that runs through um, European and American literature. If you think of William James's brother, Henry James, say the novel The Spoils of Poynton, um, the key character is a collector. She collects objects, and they become like children to her. So you see it in literature, and um, you see it in politics. Consumers now start to use that term to define them as a collective identity. They organize in boycotts to try and stop sweatshop production, and their argument is very simple that their purchasing power gives them political leverage. They can use that political leverage to achieve social ends and push through welfare reforms by joining hands as consumers. So you have white lists and black lists for good and bad um, products emerging in the years around 1900. By 1908, you have an international um, confederation of so-called buyers' leagues um, that meet um, in Paris in 1908. And I think their slogan um, says it all. Um, Their slogan was, to live is to buy. Buying is power. Power is duty. Uh, My translation. The French sounds always much better. Vivre, c'est acheter. (laughs) Acheter, c'est pouvoir. (laughs) Et pouvoir, c'est devoir. <laughs> so, uh, consuming isn't just something frivolous. It's not necessarily self-centered. It can be now turned to a collective um, use. And you can see this material self all the way to the great um, uh, world religions, including Christianity. Whereas, if you read St. Augustine in the Middle Ages... Um, There's a deep suspicion of what material possessions do to the pure Christian soul. By the mid-late 19th century, you have Christians in uh, everywhere, from the United States to Switzerland, saying, look, 
we live in this beautiful world, we constantly find out new gadgets, new plants, new uses. Well, who created this world? Well, God. Well, surely he created this wonderful world for us to find out and enjoy all these wonderful um, products and to beautify ourselves and our community with um, ornamental goods. And so by 1860, you get the Mormon Desert News telling its members that the foundation of our society, the Mormons, has now been laid. Now the work of ornamentation, adornment, and more perfect development becomes a matter of judicious attention. A good Christian couldn't just sort of walk around in old worn-out clothes. No. You showed the degree of your Christian faith by taking good care of yourself, of your home and your family, and you showed that through um, processions, furnishings, and so forth. This has um, serious implications on how people think about time and money and what to forgo and aspirations um, as well. And what this sounded like, um, uh, let's listen in to a speech Simon Patton, um, an early economist and head of the Wharton School of Business, in 1913 told a Philadelphia uh, church. He said... I tell my students to spend all that they have and borrow more and spend that. It is no evidence of loose morality when a stenographer, earning eight or ten dollars a week, appears dressed in clothing that takes nearly all of her earnings to buy. Quite the opposite, he said. It was a sign of her growing moral development it signaled her ambition to her employer. A well-dressed working girl is the backbone of many a happy home that is prospering under the influence that she is exerting over the household. So taking out credit wasn't, um, being, um, wasn't a sign of bad economic housekeeping. Taking out credit showed I'm up and coming. Watch me, I'm going to have a career. In a few years, I will have moved up the social economic ladder and I will lift my family up with them. Now, this is 1913, so don't um, uh, go back to your parents and say, oh, we heard this interesting um, historian. He said you should give me a bigger credit card so I can spend it all. This is, this is history. Yep. <laughs> now, this material self has a commercial um, infrastructure that helps it breathe and, and be. And a typical uh, material manifestation of it was the department store in the late 19th century. Department stores at that time openly advertised themselves as a kind of commercial museum of the world where you can see the wonders from all continents and, and be able to order from distant parts and have them shipped to you wherever you lived. And the department store has been given a lot of attention, and I can say more about it if you're interested later. What has been given much, much less attention is that underneath the department store, literally underneath and surrounding it, was also a new material infrastructure 
that allowed consumer culture to work. So I'm thinking of gas and electricity and water networks. Yeah? Not much fun trying to go into a department store if there are no roads or if there's no omnibus or if people smell because they don't have clean water to wash themselves. Um, that material and infrastructure is hugely important because it raised the levels of consumption of natural resources to entirely unprecedented levels. In Brooklyn, um, in New York, in 1900, the average working-class tenant used 39 gallons of water a day. So how much that? That's sort of 180 liters of water a day per person. If you decided to cross the river and go up to the Upper West Side, it was four times as much. That's as much as any luxurious American household with a big garden uses today. So water consumption just goes through the roof, partly encouraged by the new um, uh, water networks that are being introduced in the late uh, 19th century. With electricity, you can see here in a beautiful image um, engraving by a pupil of Hiroshige, um, just the effect, the first electric light made on people. And here I must thank the um, TEPCO um, archive and museum in Tokyo for allowing me um, into their museum, which they, for public relations reasons, decided they should shut down after Fukushima and not let public people people in. But they have stunning materials if you ever uh, um, in Tokyo. Now let me zoom in to a few um, big problems I became particularly fascinated um, in. And the first one um, is the problem of empire vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, colonies. Now, one of the joys, but also challenges, of writing a book that goes over 600 years and moves around the world um, is that you suddenly can see and think about the dynamic relationship between big topics or big subjects that are normally treated in isolation. And one of those is um, the late 19th century, which is both an age of new imperialism, as it's called by historians, involving the scramble for Africa in particular. But it is also the age of the department store and mass consumption. So, you know, I ask myself, well, do they just happen in isolation from each other? What is the connection or what are some um, of the connections here? An empire, I argue, had absolutely profound effects on consumer culture. Why? Well, the big effect is that the British Empire abolishes the slave trade in 1807. Later in the century, um, other European empires, except the Germans, follow. You have the American Civil War, which does away with slavery. You have the end of serfdom, and so forth. And what that means is that man-ownership, as Victorians called it, is replaced by thing-ownership. So if you want to signal status and power, uh, before the age of empire, you could do that by surrounding yourself with you know, greatest number of slaves in your tribe or, 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 or retainers um, um, nicely dressed that carry you around. Um, once empire gets going, that's no longer easy. I mean, it, it 
continues, I'm aware of that, illegally, the slave trade, but it's now an exception to what's considered the norm. The norm is now you represent who you are, your power and status, through what you have in your house, the kinds of furnishings, the kinds of objects, um, the particular fashions, but you no longer own um, slaves to do that. Now, in the early 19th century, after the abolition of the slave trade, it was a great hope by the abolitionists that newly freed slave communities would become active merchants and throw their energies into um, having better houses um, and enjoying domestic comforts. And there's a lot of optimism with that. By the late 19th century, when we hit the new imperialism, and Europeans conquer Africa, that optimism is gone. It's replaced by a pessimism, which says, well, Europeans sort of have the character to enjoy material possessions, but not Africans. Africans should be herdsmen or coolies working in mines to produce some of the minerals or raw materials that are needed by Europeans. And so in the late 19th century, Europeans try and shut down the commercial enterprise and activity they had initially encouraged in West and East Africa. Now, the advance of new um, crops like palm, palm oil, um, cocoa for the European market has devastating effects on communities and societies like the Ashanti in Ghana, which had been organized around man ownership, where chief was a chief because he had the biggest following. Once the crops get going and money starts flowing, you have so-called new men whose status and power comes from wealth and the accumulation of wealth. And that undermines um, the whole logic of the Ashanti kingdom. But equally important, and I would say um, sadly neglected by my fellow historians, is the effect, this transformation of a consumption in the age of imperialism had on the mother countries, the heartlands, the metropoles in London and Paris and elsewhere. Because what happens in Europe now is that Europeans seize control of value and they rebrand previously exotic goods as effectively domestic goods. What you see here is one, just one example from a whole string, the so-called Paula girl, introduced by the Paulik Company um, in Helsinki, Finland, in the 1920s, who um, wasn't just um, a nice poster, but literally um, young women uh, chosen for their beauty, dressed up in traditional Finnish uh, Sarah Smacky costume and then sent to travel up and down Finland to show people how to make and drink Finnish coffee. <laughs> I'm sure um, your geography is better than, than, than mine, um, but you, um, you know, I know coffee doesn't grow in Finland. So what's so Finnish about this Finnish coffee? Cadbury starts marketing cocoa as the good old English cocoa, the authentic English cocoa. Um, France introduces Jeanne d'Arc chocolate. In Switzerland, Tobler puts the Matterhorn on its chocolate. Well, surely milk is now used in chocolate, but nonetheless, the signs of the exotic disappear, 
And that's a massive shift because in the 16th and 17th century, the value of coffee, cocoa, and other such goods resided precisely that they came from distant places, from exotic places, which only distant travelers and sophisticated um, merchants and scholars knew about. By 1900, these are mass-manufactured articles which sell with provincial slogans. And um, for my um, uh, compatriots, up on the, in the cheap seats there on the first floor, I should also mention the wonderful Arminius coffee, named after Arminius, Hermann the Etruscan, who beat the Romans um, in, in ancient times, or things like Rheinland Café, also very tasty. Second problem I briefly want to um, look at is the relationship between rich and poor. Let's see whether we can... Is there a laser on this? If not. Um, On the left here, you have two charts of um, the income share of the richest 10% between 1900 and 2005 in different countries. And we don't need to bother here um, with the particular national peculiarities, but what you can see is that in all countries, albeit in different degrees, from the mid-1970s, late 1970s, you can see that the rich take a bigger slice of income, particularly pronounced in the United States, Netherlands, not that much, Um, But even Sweden, you can see the share taken by the already rich is growing. And that story from the mid-late 1970s to the present has, of course, had huge attention and for very, very good reasons. Um, We are now a much more unequal society than we were um, in previous generations. And LSE can now proudly um, add Piketty um, to that to their faculty list, and it's studied by the Global Inequality Institute. And that's very, very important. What I'm interested in is what effect does equality or inequality have on levels of consumption? A common view is that these years, late 70s to the present, see a new luxury fever, um, where houses get bigger, yachts get bigger, um, things done with cosmetic surgery get bigger, um, and and so forth. And the idea is that that puts pressure on the squeezed middle class. They're desperate to keep up with the 1%. Sounds good. But what if we widen our historical lens and include the earlier period, from the mid-40s, when the slice that the rich take is declining, getting smaller. How does that fit? Well, it doesn't fit at all. If you ask, if you turn the perspective around and instead of proceeding from inequality or equality, and you start by asking, when is there a lot of consumption? Well, the big era in consumption, the trente glorieuse, the post-war boom, are... 1950 to the 1970s. That's when consumption really becomes a massive phenomenon. But those are precisely the years when inequality diminishes. People become more equal. 
Now, how can that be? I just told you that luxury fever is the driver, according to some people. So how, how can this be? Well, it can be because there's a big sociological as well as big historical flaw in the model of conspicuous consumption. The sociological flaw is that the luxury fever model always only looks up. People always, in this view, look up who's above me, who has a bigger house, who has a bigger yacht. Oh, I want to be like them. But that's not... That's only part of the picture. People also look down. Who's coming up trying to compete with me? Are they coming closer? If they're coming closer, perhaps I need a bigger car. Well, in the um, 80s and 90s, you, because of rising inequality, actually you have a stretching out at the bottom of society. Suddenly there are people who are in long-term unemployment. Your neighbor is no longer getting the big um, salary increases. That should, if the model was right, it should actually take the pressure off consumption. If everyone else around you is getting, is stagnating or getting poorer, no reason for you to buy a bigger car, right? Just stick with the one you have. But it obviously doesn't, didn't work like that. And the historical flaw is that it's in denial about the boom in consumption that happened in the post-war decades. And that matters because it's the post-war decades that lift the poor and marginalized onto the stage of mass consumption. That's when everyone gets a TV, fridge, washing machine, and so forth. Those are those years. How is that possible? How do they get, um, how do they get all these goodies? Is it just because of equality? But if you then add to this question, you know, where does the spending come from, you realize um, most economists, until recently, worked with GDP, and they're interested in, in salary or income generated in the market. So what you're paid by your employer. But as many of you know, though that's a large part, it's only part of the equation. So according to Sen and Fitoussi and Stieglitz, in France, 20% of household income actually comes from the state through social transfer, child benefits, housing benefits, etc., pensions, and so forth. Even in the United States, it's 10%. Now, that's not the majority of income, but it's a very big chunk. And it matters because you see it's in the 50s and 60s and 70s that OECD countries, first and foremost um, Western Europe, increase social spending. That's one reason why greater equality, helped by welfare states, comes with bigger consumption. Very briefly about time. Um, cons to consume, you need money, but you also need time. If you don't have any time, how are you going to buy and enjoy goods and services? In the early 70s, um, a, a very interesting Swedish... Um, politician and economist called Stefan Linder wrote a book called The Harried Leisure Class. He'd just been to America, and as everyone who goes to America, they think they see the future. Um, and his future, according to him, was that as wages had been increasing, people would think twice about um, foregoing um, time for leisure, right? Because the, hour, the, the, the money you get for the hour you spend at the office, if you get paid more and more and more, 
makes the hour uh, idly sitting on a um, bench in the park look pretty foolish. In that hour, you can make lots more money. So Linda predicted that what people would do is they would shift from time-intensive consumption activities, such as learning to play the piano, that takes a lot of time, to buying lots of stuff and burning through it ever more quickly. Instant gratification. Um, I call it the kid in the candy store phenomenon. They, they, they get so saturated that they just they barely use um, the contents. They're just ripping, ripping the gifts to pieces and uh, fill up on sugar. Um, is that true? Is that what has happened? Um, well, we can test it because we have fairly good investigations of what people actually do in their leisure time. And funnily enough, if you look at French women, for example, today, they're three times as likely to be in a choir or an orchestra or some musical um, band than they were in 1970. Three times as likely. So that's actually suggests, in addition to buying lots of gadgets, they also do a lot of time-intensive leisure activities. Um, how is that possible? This has the answer. To stay with France, France conducted a massive national um, investigation of people's um, hobbies and leisure activities. And I've, what I've done is I've organized it by educational background. So on the top, you have the darkest bar is always university. Then the next one is um, people with a baccalaureate. And then it goes down all the way to no diploma or unfinished school. And then I organized it by activity, what people do. And what you can see is that in every single category, from listening to world music, to going to concerts, going to museums, going out for a meal with friends, going to cinemas, playing on the computer, it's always the more educated who do more of it. The only category that sticks out is um, watching TV. <laughs> That's the only one. Well, what lies behind this? Well, what this says is we're not just dealing with the acceleration of life. What we're seeing here is the more highly educated classes have started to have much more intense, multitasking leisure lives. They no longer say, you know, I went to university, I play the piano, and on Saturday I play cards. And that's just how it is. No, no, no. You need to go to the museum. You need to eat out in restaurants. You need to not just know about classical music, but you need to know about world music and jazz music and all sorts of other musics. So you are, in fact, showing you are educated because you have taste and not just in one thing, but in a multitude of genres. And you are willing to juggle your time in such a way that you can squeeze the maximum number of leisure activities into a day. That requires a lot of resources and consumption. So contrary to Staff and Linda, we've actually seen an increase in time-intensive leisure activities, but it's made possible by the combination of an ever larger number. Let me conclude with a few observations. A few weeks ago, um, the IKEA boss for sustainability announced we've seen peak stuff or he called it peak curtains. 
quite clever, you know, curtains coming down on stuff. And I thought, Jesus, if he's right, he better look for another job. Um, because if you're at Ikea and it's peak stuff and your argument is that the future will be all about repairing, um, I don't see many people driving to the North Circular to have a lamp which costs four ninety nine repaired, quite honestly. But more importantly, is, he tr- is it true? Are we seeing, other people call it, you know, a shift from stuff to fluff? Are we seeing a movement from possessions to experiences which don't any longer involve possessions? It sounds really nice. And I like to think of myself as an optimist. Why else bother spending years writing a book like that? But, you know, there's a difference between optimism and fantasy. So, ultimately, we need historical reality. What does that reality um, look like? It looks like this. Um, uh, What this graph shows is uh, a time series from 1900 to the present that tracks on top the development of GDP, so wealth. So you can see a massive increase in wealth in the world in the 20th century. But it then asks, what about the material um, resources needed to produce that wealth? And you can see, if you look at the top two here, that in total, the material used isn't as high as GDP, right? I mean, it's not as steep, the curve. And this bottom tracks that because it asks about material intensity. So if one... 1900 is one, what this tells you is that at the present, you only need 40% of the resources to produce the same value item that you needed 100 years ago. That's pretty good, you know? So big efficiency. You can can produce the same car with far fewer um, resources. Sounds great. Well, we should then ask, well, what if you do it not in total but per person? How much material was a person using to sustain their lifestyle in 1900 compared to the present? And um, that is um, uh, this line here with the circle dots. So roughly speaking, we are burning through twice as much as our great-grandparents. We're more efficient at it, but nonetheless, we've doubled Um, um, our burden in that respect. So what are some of the lessons from from what I've been um, telling you? Now, don't don't go away. Don't be depressed yet. Um, It's not all bad. Um, Well, one lesson is what to do about it. Um, Some people who um, read Galbraith as their Bible and who think everything went wrong after 45, that's when people became consumerist, advocate zero growth. That's the only way out of it, zero growth. Well, that would be a huge mistake in my view. Um, Zero growth is a bit like trying to maneuver and steer a massive tanker that has come to a stop. You need, if you want to move and change the direction of a big um, dragging vehicle, um, you need some movement. So green growth probably more than zero growth. I also quite honestly don't think how it would work. Why developing countries would say, great idea, you rich people in the West, just have zero growth. Well, what are they going to do? And to top things off, 
Um, if you're poor in this country, why would zero growth be attractive to you? Why would um, the very rich say, okay, we now only have zero growth, so let's give the poor a bit more? Well, I think the last few years have um, given plenty of suggestion what happens when you have low or no growth. It's not pretty. Second idea would be, okay, it's inequality. If we get to grips with inequality and crack that problem, then people will consume less because they're going to be more equal and harmonious and live happily ever after. Well, but we've just seen that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, people became much more equal, but they also consumed much, much more. So I think inequality... Um, uh, sorry, equality might be nice and important for all sorts of reasons, but we shouldn't be so naive to think it will get, out a, get us out of an environmental hole we're in. Um, Stockholm, people in Stockholm, um, are often thought of as sort of poster boys of frugality and environmental living. Well, since 1995 people in Stockholm have bought now, they buy five times as many appliances and four times as much clothing as they did in 1975. That does not sound like peak stuff to me. That sounds pretty much like the empire of things is, is going strong, as strong as ever. So what, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? Well, yes, there is, in fact. If we take um, the history much more seriously and acknowledge, for instance, things like this. Um, how in the past, cities, social movements, governments, and also consumer groups have changed lifestyles. Not through the marketplace, not through individual choice, but through heavy programs of changing infrastructures and with the infrastructures changing the habits of people. Think about showering and washing clothes. Well, people didn't have a daily or twice daily shower in the 19th century, and they didn't wash their pair of jeans the minute after they wore it for two hours. You know, those things change in history. There's no reason why we today should presume that our habits and our lifestyles are set in stone and untouchable. They shouldn't be. I think there should be discussion of what lifestyles and habits we can have within certain limits, environmental limits and social limits, and what the consumption impact of that uh, would produce. Japan is an, a wonderful example because you had a dramatic change of lifestyle, of fashion, of behavior, where people sat, how they sat, did they stand in the kitchen or did they sit on the floor, um, did they wear kimono or not, um, in the early 20th century, and that was promoted through a massive um, life reform movement that went out to change habits. So I don't think there's any reason to get depressed um, unless you're completely unwilling to ever change um, lifestyle and you want the present to continue forever. So we have a big problem of sustainability. Um, if we want to get to terms with that, we need to understand the big history uh, that lies behind it. I think I stop here.
Thanks very much, Frank. But of course, uh, we all know that Yorkshire tea actually comes from Yorkshire, so I, I hope that's in there. But, but I'd like to thank you not, not only for the, the, the richness of, of the talk and the examples, but for, for doing it in a historical way and tracing the evolution of consumerism and showing yet again that economists get it wrong and historians get it right. <laughs> so... I hope there are more historians and economists in the audience. We've got about half an hour, uh, up to half an hour, and Professor Trentman will very kindly take some, some questions. And I'll, I'll take the questions in, in groups of, of two or three. Can I ask you, if you do ask a question, there, there are some roving mics, so, so wait till the mic comes to you. But can you also give your name and affiliation, uh, just so we, we have some idea of, of, of who you are and what you are before you ask the question. I'll just wait till one or two people... Clear the top. <laughs> okay. I can see several hands up. Where have we got? Um, well, they're much bolder at the top. Let's start with the top. We'll start with you, please. And then we've got uh, one question, two questions. Have you got one question or two questions o over here? I can't see. Certainly one hand is up. Uh, but we'll start with you, please. Hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public um, up here. Um, Based on your lecture, Max Weber completely got it wrong because he believed it was the birth of the Puritan individual who worked hard and saved a lot that created capitalism, not the birth of material self. The second question, have you found any evidence of the consumption of fake materials or counterfeit materials in history? Okay, and we had uh, two questions, at least one question over here, I think. <laughs> Just one for me. Yeah. Um, I want to... Ask you another question, I think, about the relationship between empire and consumption. Um, you painted a picture where empire, in a sense, eases this transformation from towards a, a material culture. Um, that is a point that I think is a little controversial in imperial history, um, particularly where there are some cases where it's fairly well documented. India is the big example, where the arrival of European imperialism, because it effectively centralizes power away from local aristocracies towards the central colonial state, um, effectively takes away wealth and patterns of consumption from these sort of rather grand sort of courts of the Maharajas, and in fact has a depressing effect on the Indian economy. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Do, do, do you have a question? question? Yes, yeah, so if you could comment on that. Comment on that. Okay. And can we have this gentleman with the blue shirt, please, because you put your hand up first. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Stuart McIver, founder of GetBase Brand over here. Oh, sorry. I find you. <laughs> Thank you very much for an excellent presentation. Uh, I'm not a historian, uh, so I could be set right here. My question is, uh, in, in my limited understanding of consumerism, uh, as it contributes to the human condition of today, we currently experience a better human condition than has ever been seen in history, as I understand it, globally. Therefore, is it a problem it's driving us to new frontiers, new health, new technology, new opportunities, new all sorts of things. Surely it's the engine that's evolving us. Should I take that? Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, comments rather than questions. Yes, I mean, Marx, mm -hmm. however fascinating is, yeah, he got, he got plenty of things wrong. Um, uh, that doesn't mean one shouldn't read um, Marx. Um, Max Weber, you said. Sorry, Max Weber didn't get many things wrong. Um, I, 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 
I'm, I'm pleased to say. I'm, I'm pleased to say. Um, nonetheless, I mean, you know, the, the image Max Weber had about um, the sort of disenchantment of the modern world worked off an idea that in previous centuries people were tied to the land, they worked the land, and then they thought about death. Um, and that was, that, that was a bit it. And then comes modernity and opens all of this up. Um, I would say that, you know, it doesn't really matter... Um, where you start, whether it's in um, Renaissance Venice or in the Yangtze uh, Valley, you see you see elements of modernity emerging there. So I find this chronological divide, as a historian, hugely complicated. Your interesting question about fake antiques relates to that, because one thing um, that drove um, the uh, drive for sorry that drove acquisitiveness in late Ming times, was a desire for antiquity. So old things, old historical objects, and that, of course, encouraged craftsmen to produce new items and then disguise them through discoloring um, or using old paints as antiques. So they're fake antiques. Um, 19th century France... um, to take a European example, is full of fake, inauthentic goods passed on as antiques. Um, so that's a, quite, a long, quite a long story, though not on the same scale as um, what we see in, in the present for technological uh, reasons. On empire, uh, no, that was an interesting comment, um, but it could have been turned into a question, and so I will, I will just respond to it briefly. Um, what the British, I mean, what the uh, uh, Raj, uh, British Raj does um, to Indian patterns of consumption is, for one, what you mentioned, which is to destroy patterns of elite consumption. Um, so, where courts and festivals are underpinned by craftsmen that specialize in elite products, be it elite jewelry or very fine, um, fine clothing, things like that. Um, and what they replace it with is a much more hegemonic mass style of consumption, um, which is aimed at middle class and lower middle class um, employees. Um, the third thing they do is they think they should employ the municipal reforms of Manchester and Liverpool to Delhi and Calcutta. And that has dramatic effects because it changes the architecture of new housing, it changes the infrastructure, it changes all, I mean, all the way down to the kind of liquor uh, that, that, that is being sold. Um, but nonetheless, um, India shows within that distinctive experience, shows some of the same paradoxes and tensions that you can find in African colonial regimes because... Once you have a new sartorial regime of how Europeans dress and you're the master class and you have Indian um, clerks trying to emulate that, the clothing they adopt um, breaches the distance that's meant to be there between imperial masters and servants. So you have a spiral of regulations in the late 19th century that try to prevent and stop Indians from emulating or looking like Europeans. So empire, from, I mean, if you were an economist or businessman, this is really stupid. Because what 
the European empires had was, in fact, a sizable mass market. But they're trying to constantly regulate it and crack down and prevent consumption. And you can make the argument that that didn't hold back the United States. The United States didn't care whether they, where they sold products. They, I mean, they cared at home about race relations. But when it came to overseas customers, just gave them the goods. Um, on health um, technology and consumption, well, one thing... Um, I've been, been quite interested in is the emergence of consumer power and new organized consumer groups in the 60s and 70s around that issue. So consumers demanding um, not just um, choice in the supermarket, but consumers now demanding to be heard and listened to and having some decision over how they're treated, um, where they're treated, and with what medication they're being treated. And in the, America, I mean, in the United States, it was the patients' movement that was a um, very, very important um, pillar of Ralph Nader's much bigger than consumer citizen movement. And in the 70s, you had similar de- debates in um, the United Kingdom, um, slightly different um, constellation there, because um, now Lord Owen, himself a doctor after all, saw this as a wonderful thing of shifting um, responsibilities and resources away from the state. Um, So it's not just that the technologies change and set this in motion, it's also, I think, um, a much greater demand and assertiveness and expectation by individuals, patients who now see themselves as consumers who should be served. Thank you. There's a question right at the back there, and then I'll take... Um, where have we got? Um, we'll, we'll, not good throw, we'll have that person there and this one here. But we'll have the one right at the back first, please. Thank you. And no affiliation. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on the uh, situation in Cuba where the health and health technology seems to be rather well developed, uh, education as well, but the consumption patterns don't seem to be quite the same, uh, perhaps because of, 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 of the embargo. However, they seem to have, have, have made uh, remarkable strides in, not in, 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 in subduing the waste. For example, they are not supermarkets and shops and shopping malls as, as we know it. <coughs> Thanks. And then I had one. Uh, yes, one there. Yeah. Hi there. Uh, David Charles down here. Um, I'm actually writing a book at the moment that touches on some of these topics, specifically the abstention from stuff. Um, My question is, uh, historically, where does the stimulus for these massive life reform programs come from that you mentioned in Japan? Um, So government, social movements, or public intellectuals like yourself. Uh, And where do you see that coming from today? Mm -hmm. And then there was one here. Hi, Michelle McGarr, I'm a journalist. I just want to know really what's next. Do you think we can carry on at this level of consumption or will that we see a backlash against stuff? I, think, I believe it's already happening. And do you think we'll shift towards collecting experiences rather than things? Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Um, very, very good questions. Um, Cuba. Um, I love Cuba, but... Um, in doing this book, I, I was of conscious that if I pursue all my sort of, possible geographic interests, then it won't 
any longer fit into one volume. So I want to answer your question by sort of widening it out just a little bit to other um, socialist regimes which also invested a lot in um, health and education and had different consumption profiles. Because I think your question puts a finger on a very important issue, which is that we today um, often in public discourse and policy, consumption is equated with individual choice in the marketplace. And there is this constellation exists. But um, it's a mistake to think that consumption is, is exclusively the property of capitalist societies. Socialist societies, um, you know, 50s, 60s, up to the 80s, were massive consumers by any stretch of the historical imagination. So if you had taken East Germany or um, Czechoslovakia and taken someone born in 1700 to that society, they would have been astounded by all the stuff that people had, in addition to the welfare and education services you mentioned. So I think that's important to recognize. There's less choice in these societies, and the TV um, arrives a few years later, and the car breaks down more often, but there's still a TV and a car in socialist societies. So just thinking this is a capitalist um, problem, and if we fix capitalism, we, we get somewhere, is, I think, um, not, not right. Um, where does life reform, where do these life reform movements come, come from? Well, the Japanese case is very interesting because it's a coalition. Um, it's partly supported by the state and a government action. There the logic is, if Japan wants to survive, it needs to modernize. If we want to modernize, well, let's try and be more like the countries we think are in the front of the modern race. So Japanese go to Berlin, um, uh, less so uh, to the United Kingdom. And what do they find in Berlin? Very different cities, infrastructures, and German beer. So you go back to Japan and you start having German beer societies, and you're trying to think about infrastructure reform and different modes of cleanliness and public hygiene. But if it just had been the state, this wouldn't have gone anywhere to go somewhere, it needed the support of professionals, architects, um, and philanthropists, and it needed the support from social movements. In the case of Japan, uh, housewives leagues. So you needed to get the actual consumers on board to effect changes like that. Uh, the implication for us today is, you know, I'm, I can think of a whole long list of particular individual policy measures that governments should pass. But if you want to change lifestyles and habits, you need to have social movements involved. This cannot just be a Whitehall um, decree. Um, and hence, social movements need to be part of this debate, which leads me to the last question about, um, are we not perhaps seeing a backlash? I would say backlash is too strong. I think um, debates about, um, are we overstuffed? Um, or are we suffering from psychological problems because we are on this, um, in this rat race, like a hamster on a wheel, always wanting more? Um, the fascination with Airbnb and sharing websites. All of those things trigger an unease about the present situation. And um, there are many um, sharing um, groups that should be uh, firmly supported, like repair communities and repair cafes. 
I mean, there's no reason why repair people in some countries have to pay VAT, but not in others. Um, so there's lots of things you can do, but it's not a backlash, and it's not a backlash because so far all that we've seen is um, people joining simple living groups um, see themselves as introducing an alternative lifestyle that cannot be for the majority. It's defined as something special um, and alternative that's only good for a small community that tries to distance itself from the majority. And hence, it doesn't go very far. Um, Airbnb is a classic example where sharing resources, in fact, leads to um, the greater use of resources, not to the lesser resource. Because what happens with Airbnb, and it's well documented if you're in the hotel business, is prices for hotel rooms drop so they can compete with Airbnb. Um, The people who go for three days to Barcelona or Prague pay less. Well, what do they do with the money? They don't go home with the money and put it all in the piggy bank. No, they either spend it in Barcelona or Prague, or they go on um, another short city break two weeks later because they've saved the money. Um, And in fact, Airbnb, to be fair to them, they're completely honest and open about that because that's their business model. They wouldn't have many investors if they said, look, our business model is for everyone to sit at home on their own couch and have an occasional friend. No, they're they're saying, you know, what we're doing is we're revitalizing city centers because we're bringing more and more tourists into the old towns uh, to spend. So that's where the problem is. And... um, that's where you know, I think there needs to be a much more fundamental discussion, not so much about how we get the resources and how we distribute them, but you know, what, do we use these, I mean, what do we use goods and services for? I mean, are there certain lifestyles that we have adopted which are simply in itself not sustainable and hence need adjusting? So, for instance, school children, uh, a typical example, and it, um, if I may just briefly put that back on, um, if you, so yeah, I showed you this, this graph, and I didn't, go, um, I didn't have time to go um, into the history of it all, but 100 years ago, if we had taken the same cultural survey um, and asked, you know, what do well-educated people do and what do middle-class people do, I mean, less well-educated, and then go down, we would have seen a completely different graph because um, 100 years ago, and certainly... In Aristotle's time, um, you know, a bit over 2,000 years ago, to be idle meant to reflect and have time for philosophy. You showed you were um, a member of the elite because all this running about and rushing about was done by, you know, servants and other people. Um, If you were rich and you could afford to, you took that time to be genuinely at leisure. I mean, the original word of leisure not multitask and be in three places at once. (laughs) If you watch movies carefully from the 1950s and 1960s, um, and um, if you like Italian film, as I do, there's a great, you know, Toto, the Italian comedian, there's a hilarious comedy with Toto, um, who tries to, um, uh, you know, he has some, some corrupt, shady business, but it involves a businessman and um, the producers picked up on the trend at the time, suddenly this man doesn't just have one phone on the desk. 
He has four phones on the, on the desk because he's so important that he has multiple conversations at mm-hmm. the same time. That's completely new. And we know um, from American sociologists looking at change in the 50s and 60s, it's around that time that people who wanted to show um, they were um, upper class signaled that through having busier lifestyles, busier leisure lifestyles, doing more things at the same time. So if you're a historian, you say, okay, we were at a time when leisure was much more relaxed and people aspired to be like Aristotle. Now, there is an aspiration to be in the executive club lounge, fly around a lot, and at the same time as you read Aristotle, you're also eating, watching a movie, and, and tweeting to someone. So where does, this come, where does this come from? I think one, one needs to sort of ask that question. Where does it come from? And does our society at the moment perhaps unconsciously reinforce that? If you have school children, you will know exactly how many school clubs, for instance, there are. And there is sort of pressure on young children to join as many clubs as possible, not just to be good at piano, but at least five other instruments, and (laughs) on top in the rugby team, and so forth and so forth and so forth. Um, And hence all the diplomas. We, as parents, constantly get diplomas (laughs) for everything because they're so wonderful, the kids, you know? (laughs) So I think it has to start at that fundamental level, and we have to ask ourselves whether governments and um, public authorities, but also, you know, social movements and individual consumers may be able to think of less resource-intense lifestyles. Okay. I think we could take... Oh, we've got four. Should I take those four as the last four? We've got one here, two, three, four at the back. Whoops, didn't notice upstairs. I did do upstairs quite well before. (laughs) If they're short questions, we'll have time for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Look, I, I greatly enjoyed that, uh, that lecture. My name's Ian Orr. I'm a retired diplomat with not too many pairs of shoes, but thousands of books, many more than I could possibly read or, or use. Uh, my question is, to what extent do you think it's important that concepts of ownership have changed over time and though you very often talk about goods and services, the distinction between goods and services and the distinction between ownership of a physical attribute like a house or a car or uh, the ability to have uh, secure housing, food uh, and transport made available other ways. Okay, you've got the mic. I'm you speak first? Robert Lee from King's College. Um, you've talked about the development of consumerism primarily, I think, in terms of um, the psychological and social and cultural factors involved in being a consumer. You've hardly talked at all about um, the influence of production and productive forces in driving um, consumerism. Do you think there is a role for the analysis of production in the development of consumerism. Uh, My name is Igor. I work as a software developer. First of all, thank you very much for the election. 
And I have a question. I get the impression that one of your message was that the whole consumerism is not very sustainable. And in, in that case, my question is, uh, then what is alternative, and especially current economy is measured by simple, maybe not very correct measurements like GDP, unemployment, and if there will be some shift from not consumer growth to some un another model, what kind of economic measurements will be used then? So how the framework will change? Thank you. Uh, yeah, Janet Sproul. I see overpopulation as a big problem, and people are living longer and not having enough to do. What's your answer to that? Good way to end. Writing this book, um, you know, one gives lots of lectures and talks to people, but it's it's funny. Um, because, in a way, these four questions would have helped me enormously if we had had this discussion a few, few, few years ago. Um, but let me, give a, let me give a stab, because there are some bits in the book that I think answer, answer these four. Um, ownership and concepts of ownership. Um, yeah, hugely important, in fact, and, and fascinating. If you look, for instance, at the United States and different legislation in... Um, individual states to what happens if you become bankrupt. What are the things that they can take away from you and what are the things they're not allowed to touch? And it's a huge variety. I mean, in addition to, I mean, you know, some states set a ceiling of $200,000, others say, no, 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 $20,000 maximum. In some countries, TV is inalienable. You're not allowed to take someone's TV. Um, in Germany, by contrast, and the Germans are a little bit more austere, there was a huge um, debate um, seven years ago about bankruptcy law reform and what to do with bankrupts. And um, the, um, the Social Democrats um, initially wanted to say, yes, you can take a color TV away, but you need to replace it with a black and white TV for the, <laughs> for, for the indebted person. And the hard left... The 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 the, uh, the now, um, they wanted just to throw debtors into prison. So it's a remarkable variety across cultures about what can be taken um, and what not. The services question is interesting um, at a number of levels. One is um, that it gives me a chance to say one more thing about the sharing, the idea that sharing or um, a revulsion against stuff might be the answer, because of course services aren't entirely light. I mean, on the environment and in material terms, services also need resources. People just don't see the resources, yeah, because the services don't arrive with the resources. You have your, um, your Wi-Fi, and it's just there somehow. But in France today, um, something like 16% of, the, of electricity consumption is now by IT services only. Now, that's a lot of electricity. Um, if you add up the miles driven by people to theaters, restaurants, the hobbies, so, you know, billions of tarmac um, that are involved in these services. And then if you add all the people who work in the service sector, you know, they need to get there somehow, don't they? <laughs> so they also... You know, so I'm not... Um, you know, sometimes... 
you read these articles by people who say, oh, we see a shift, relative shift from goods trade to services. Wonderful. Uh, we're going to be fine. Well, first thing you look at is, in fact, it's a relative shift, but in total, goods are still growing. It's just services have been growing faster. And then if you ask, well, what's involved in producing these services, then it doesn't look so nice any, any longer. Now, production is very important and um, features in the book, all the way down to the role played by enterprises, um, in fact. So company towns, good example. Company towns in the early 20th century introduced millions of workers to a completely different standard of living by providing company housing, company sports. Um, Batar, the shoe, big shoe manufacturer, had the biggest cinema in all of Europe. Um, so production is absolutely important. I would just not go as far as um, in a few decades some people did and say, well, you can actually f- trace back how consumption is to production. I do believe consumers... Um, and consumer culture um, shapes the way products are embraced, and they're crucial for how products are eventually used. That's not all in the product. Um, uh, Igor's question about um, perhaps we've got the measurements wrong. Perhaps we also need different measurements. I think that's absolutely true. And um, there's excellent work done um, here at LSE to come up with different criteria And in addition to the debate about happiness, um, I mean, I like to be happy. We all like to be happy. But I'm not uh, someone who believes that the essence of human life uh, should be we must always be happy. There may be other characteristics. But, you know, add happiness if you like. I certainly think time and um, time use, how is time used in Consumption should be a, a serious consideration, um, uh, and their well-being um, uh, estimates as well. And if you're interested in this, I would guide you. I mean, I can show you the footnote if you have a moment afterwards. There is this wonderful report. Some um, oddly, some statistical errors in it, but nonetheless, interesting report, sort of 120 pages or so, produced by Amartya Sen and C and Joe Stieglitz on alternative ways of measuring growth and well-being, which explores how the numbers look if you don't start with GDP, but you have other measures. Uh, And that's where I plucked the um, 20% of um, social spending uh, making uh, going into the household budget from. Um, So lots of things change. The whole shape of the economy changes. Is overpopulation and aging um, the big problem? Um, um, aging, um, I don't. I mean, aging is a huge challenge. Um, I'm increasingly aware of that myself, actually. Um, <laughs> um, aging is a real problem, um, but surely, um, whenever people say, "Oh, consumers are selfish," and we've people have consumed too much, and think about all these teenagers doing silly things, wearing silly clothes, driving silly mopeds, my instant reaction to that is, what about the elderly? If you look at the, um, the last 50 years, the big thing isn't the rise of the teenager. The big thing is the rise of the elderly consumer. Um, most companies have still not caught up with that. 
Um, I don't think welfare officers have caught up with it either because people don't like to talk about elderly or have adverts with elderly in it. It's still um, not, not much there. But if you look at the numbers, um, retired people in Germany and Japan have now much more disposable income than people in their 20s and early 30s. That's inconceivable 100 years ago. Britain was a bit slower, but if you look at the lifestyle um, elderly people had to put up with in 1950s Liverpool, where we have you know, uh, long social inquiries, it's absolutely miserable and, uh, and abhorrent. And for elderly people, the idea that they could have fun, that they should also be allowed um, to be consumers and um, travel or change their clothes and upgrade their fashions, it was a huge, I think there was a huge enrichment um, for that population. Overpopulation, that's a thornier issue. Um, and if you, if I just one more time show this, um, this graph, um, you know, population is, um, uh, where are we? This, this, this is population. So if you want, a lot of the increase um, in GDP and um, domestic resource use is partly due to rising population. Um, but I would always say this, there are lots of other things we can do before uh, we get worried about some population time bomb or so. There are lots of things with our existing populations we can do to reduce the pressure on resources. It's not just down to the numbers of people um, that are around. Okay, I know there were more questions, but I'm afraid we've run out of time. Uh, before you go off and consume, before you go off and have dinner with your friends or go to the gym or even watch television, can I remind you this is a lecture with consumption added on. There, is a, there are books. The book has come out. Uh, there is a stall outside the old theatre uh, where you can purchase the book, and if you would like Professor Trentman to sign it, if you could please bring it back here to the stage, then, then he'll do so. But I'd like to thank all of you for coming. I'd like to thank you for the questions, which I think were, were really thought-provoking. But most of all, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Trentman for uh, a really stimulating and such enormously wide-ranging lecture. So thank you very much.